What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to another episode of the Vanguards of Healthcare podcast, where we chat with the leaders at the forefront of change in the healthcare industry. My name is Jonathan Palmer, and I'm a healthcare analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, the in-house research arm of Bloomberg. We're very excited to have Paul Markovich joining us for today's episode. He's a 25-year veteran of Blue Shield of California, where he served as president and CEO for over a decade. He also serves on the boards of the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association, and AHIP, the Health Industry Health Insurance Industries Trade Association. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. Uh, thank you for having me, Jonathan. It's great to be here. Well, before we dive into some of the exciting things you and your team are working on, why don't we just uh, start off with an overview of the organization? I know that you guys have a very rich history as the first Blue Shield plan. Maybe just dive into you know what your organization looks like and who you serve, and, and maybe some numbers around members and, and all that good stuff. Sure. Well, we're a nonprofit health plan. We're over 80 years old, founded in the 1930s by physicians. Uh, very, very mission driven. We serve about 4.8 million members, approximately $25 billion in annual revenue. We have a 2% pledge where we pledge to maintain a no, no more than a 2% net income margin. Uh, and we give back anything above that to our customers and or the community. And over time, we've given back over $800 million uh, since we introduced that pledge in 2010. So it's, um, uh, so yeah, that's kind of, we're a pretty large uh, regional nonprofit health plan. In term of government versus commercial versus exchange? We look a lot like the world. Uh, <laughs> we, um, and so we're in every line of business. We serve Medicaid, which is called Medi-Cal here in California, Medicare, the individual market. So on the California exchange, small employer groups, large insured groups, large self-funded groups. So there's literally no line of health insurance that we aren't participating in. And, uh, you know, we, we about, uh, a little less than a million of those 4 million lives are in government programs. Okay. Medicaid and, and Medi-Cal. Um, the, there's almost a third of Californians get their health care through Medicaid, the Medicaid program here. Um, but right now we're only in Los Angeles and San Diego counties for Medi-Cal. We certainly hope to expand there later in life. But um, yeah, we're, we're, larger in the individual and small employer markets than we are in the large group markets, but we're in all those markets. Got it. And, you know, you guys made a pretty big splash this summer in mid-August. You made this announcement around a first-of-its-kind pharmacy model. And I guess the crux of it is you're moving from a, a sole vendor to a number of vendors with, I guess, Amazon and Cost Plus on the, on the let's call it maintenance at acute prescription side. You've got a Barca, I guess, who's doing claims adjudication. 
I don't think you explicitly said that Prime Therapeutics is doing rebates, but it sounds like they are, um, or maybe formulary management between them and Magellan. And then CVS Caremark, I guess, is still maintaining the uh, the specialty services piece. So can you kind of talk about what went into that decision process? And and as you think about, you know, your, your pharmacy spend over the last 10 years, where were the big pain points and what was kind of the impetus for this decision to move to this new model? Well, it was pretty clear as we looked at um, pharmacy costs and trends uh, that that is where we were and where we're trying to go is just unsustainable. Uh, so we're affordability is core to our mission. Um, and when we looked at the numerical targets we'd set for affordability, there was no way to hit them with a pharmacy trend that was either approaching or around 10% per year and had been at a very high level for multiple years already. And so when we dug into the things that were driving that, it's pretty clear that this distribution system, and what I mean by distribution system is all of the players in the process between the pharmacy manufacturer creating a drug and the consumer or the patient taking the drug. Mm -hmm. That ecosystem has eight players. It takes up more than a third of the cost of the price of the drug. And all of the players in that system make more money. They generate more revenue and profit when we sell and administer a higher volume of more expensive drugs. So all of the incentives are structurally highly inflationary. Mm -hmm. And so when we looked at it, we said, well, sure, you could try to negotiate a better deal with uh, another pharmacy benefit manager, but you're really just going back into that same irretrievably flawed system. It's just going to, is designed and built for opaqueness and profitability and for driving, you know, structural high inflation rates through the pharmacy distribution chain. So that's just uh, a, a losing cause, we thought. And we felt, felt like what we needed to do was take what is currently being treated as a profit and revenue center and turn it into a cost and quality center. Mm-hmm. So the idea is basically, okay, if if the pharmacy manufacturers are on average getting 65 cents on the dollar for their price uh, that they charge, let's just give them that 65 cents directly. And then let's work with like-minded partners with aligned incentives to make the distribution channel way more cost-effective than the one that exists today. And lo and behold, when you do that, we save about $500 million a year when the thing completely scales up. So that was really what led us to this conclusion and to pursue this model. So did you even go out with RFPs maybe to the other big PBMs just to see if, if maybe that was maybe a, a stopgap solution? Or, or did you have in your mind that, you know, we needed a wholesale change here and how we were doing things? No, we went in just saying, uh, because we went through this already once before, and um, you sort of, you can get savings, you know, in the first 12 to 18, maybe even 24 months, but then the trend just over time overwhelms that. And so uh, the, and it's, it's easy to see why when you look at the incentives in the, in the distribution system. So we, we knew exactly what we wanted to do. And we invited others to part to bid. Uh, we did have a request for proposal, but it was broken down by each of the pieces of uh, activity that and capability mm-hmm. that needed to be provided. So we didn't let anyone bid for the whole thing as a consolidated entity. We let everybody bid for each particular um, service. 
so that we could have a best in breed kind of model. And, and that, and that's when we came out with, well, who's best for home delivery? Probably not shockingly, Amazon <laughs> came out pretty well <laughs> on that process um, and, and so on and so forth. And, and, the, and as you alluded to with the prime uh, model, we, we know we want to get everyone to net price across all lines of business, but we also know it's going to be a journey. And so mm-hmm. we're not going to get completely out of the rebate world right away. We think we can get largely out of it by 1125 or you know, make a significant dent in it, but it's probably going to take time before we can get that truly to zero. Got it. And is that when when it's really going to go into effect for your members, one, one, Jan 125? Yes, yeah, so we're going to pilot some things here in, in 2024 um, on a smaller scale. But the, the full model being available to all of our, our customers will be January 1st, 2025 effective date. And what do you have to do to, I guess, stand up the, the organization for the change from working with one vendor to now now five. I mean, it seems to me there's there's a risk that there's some complexity there, uh, just just inherent in, in working with different people. Is is that a fair statement? I mean, what have you guys had to do to? It's it, it is more complicated. I'd also say that it's not dramatically more complicated than what we do every day. I mean, we have we do business with over a thousand vendors uh, just to process claims, to pr- provide eligibility. We work through brokers and consultants. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, to get to large group employers. I mean, the complexity associated with um, managing really a small economy, 60,000 physicians, 350 hospitals, pharmacies, uh, durable medical equipment. I mean, you think about all the things you have to do, all the contracts that you have to manage, all the integration that has to happen. Um, this is what health plans do for a living. It's what we mm-hmm. do for a living. So it is more complex. That does create operational and business risk because you have to count on you have, you know, for lack of a better term, multiple points of potential failure. Um, and so there's more risk and more complexity. But honestly, it's probably below average complexity relative to other processes we have to manage as a health plan. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, the adjudication of prescription claims has been around for a long time. It's it's <laughs> it's not rocket science. It's not anything new. You know, as we think about that $500 million target, uh, your financials uh, kind of sketch out, you know, 14 cents of every dollar of premiums are going to uh, prescription costs, which would put, I guess, maybe you guys in the ballpark of north of $3 billion of drug spend. Is that the right way to think about it? And $500 on 300 or $3 billion or $500 million on $3 billion seems like a, a, yeah. a big savings. Closer to, well, actually, the number is closer to $4 billion. Um, okay. And it's right around four billion because it's ten. It's between ten to fifteen percent of savings. It's probably around twelve percent, maybe a little higher, but right in between ten to fifteen percent worth of savings. But again, if you think about it, that the distribution costs today are thirty-five percent, roughly, of the total. Um, you know, it's not that difficult to get to that, get to that number, especially when you take a look at, you know, the example that I, I've been sharing where we managed to negotiate a far better price for a prostate cancer drug that's mm-hmm. generic. Uh, it's currently out there costing around $3,000 per month. Um, but we managed to, through our purchasing organization, nonprofit Civica, get it for $160 a month. And then our pharmacy benefit manager said they wouldn't distribute it. Um, and so we had to go through like five months of very intense wrangling and finally got to the point where they permitted us to do it to sell that $160 drug through a different channel. Um, so it, 
but you can see what happens. It's uh, and even today that that $160 version, same compound, generic compound, uh, about 90% market share is with the $3,000 version, and it's the you exact know, same thing. And so it's that's when you look at that, Jonathan, you sort of see and then you multiply the examples that are out there where there's you know an alternative out there that's way less expensive, but all of the players in the system profit by having the most expensive drug out there. You not only have a lower distribution cost, you're, you're going to have a lot more, when you get incentives aligned, a lot more substitution to more cost-effective uh, thera therapeutics. You've been doing this for a long time, you know, and as, as we think about how pharmacy and, and I guess the, the specialty pharmacy channel has grown to, I guess, now 50% of, of spend, is having the, spe the large specialty pharmacies under the umbrella of the PBM or, or managed care organizations is, is that part of the problem from where you sit that structurally, you yeah. know, they're, you know, this, you're incentivizing to either pay on one one hand's paying the other almost at the end of the day. Is that the right yeah. way to think about it? That's absolutely what's happening. Well, there's a combination. There's been horizontal integration and vertical integration. So you've got three pharmacy benefit managers taking 80% of the volume. And so they have a lot of market power when it comes to negotiating with the pharmacy manufacturers. And then they've been buying and integrating. They've got their group purchasing organization. Sometimes they're overseas. They've got um, specialty pharmacies that they own. So they're charging themselves fees and paying themselves fees throughout that value chain. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's that, that entire, you really have to think about it, not just of the pharmacy benefit manager piece, but you have to think of this entire ecosystem of players. More and more of them are being owned or joint ventured with, uh, I don't know if it's joint ventured, but owned and managed and controlled and influenced by the pharmacy benefit managers. So more and more of, of that, all of those dollars are kind of getting channeled to these intermediaries um, and, and not necessarily making healthcare better, not necessarily helping getting the right drug to the right person at the right time at the most, in the most cost-effective way, but certainly in a manner that maximizes profitability. And if we go back to that, that 500 million in savings, where, where are the big buckets within that 500 million? You know, where, where are you actually going to be saving the dollars? Well, I think the big thing is, and I just, you know, this is, we've already had some conversations with pharmacy manufacturers and um, it's been incredibly refreshing to them to hear from me. I just want to pay you for the drug. Just tell me what it costs because they start telling stories about, well, the last time I was here, you know, pharmacy benefit manager XYZ came in and said, I had to pay a fee in order to get on the formulary. I had to pay a fee to this other group purchasing organization before they'd even start a negotiation. They had to, so they're like right. getting, they're not just getting rebates, they're getting fees and then they're charging fees based on the price associated with it. And then their wholesaler, they own the wholesaler and the wholesaler gets a piece of it. Um, and so, I mean, I, I, I was talking about one of the wholesalers and, and I saw some of the profit that they had made in the last quarter. And I thought, and they taught and they attributed, I think, to the, um, you know, to these weight loss drugs that have come mm -hmm. out. And I thought, well, you know, UPS doesn't get a higher fee because the contents of the package are, you know, higher priced. But that's not the way it works in pharmacy. So when you when you sort of go into all of this, there's just like, you know, everyone's taking a piece of the high price of the drug. So the biggest part of this is just to say. When you, 
when you take the cost of distributing the drug, that cost between the pharmacy manufacturer and the patient that I talked about before, mm-hmm. most of the cost savings that we're projecting, probably 80% of it, has to do with it's just less expensive when you have a lower cost distribution system. And then another chunk of it is what I talked about before, which is, well, now you don't have the incentive to always be fulfilling a prescription at the highest possible uh, price point, and you're going to get more substitution to Mm -hmm. these lower cost um, alternatives than you get today. So aligning incentives with all the players uh, drives some value as well. But the big thing is it's just, you know, it doesn't cost that much to actually get the drugs from point A to point B. It costs a fraction of what it's costing the current system. Mm-hmm. And so would it be fair to say, you know, if we think about prescriptions, you know, generics being 90% of scripts, is the majority of that savings going to be on the branded side? I think it's mostly going to be on the branded side. Yes. But because um, uh, I, I don't, you know, I, but there are, it's interesting, there are quote unquote generics. And I just gave an example of one that prospect, yeah, right in the specialty world, Rip. Uh, in the specialty world. But, um, you know, even we've um, insulin. Uh, you know, we've had, you know, there's, 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 there's been drugs that, uh, and they, they've been covered in the news sometimes, even in the generic side, there are savings, but I agree with the idea that the, the, it's really the cost of the distribution overall, which the higher cost is with the higher priced drugs and the higher priced drugs are brand. So just by definition, the majority mm-hmm. of your savings is going to be on the brand and the specialty side. As, as you think about, you know, moving into that Jan 1 start date, how much member education are you going to have to do for this new model? So if I'm John Palmer and I'm a, I'm a member, what's it going to look like over the next year to kind of get me to this place where Amazon and Cost Plus are, yeah. are probably fulfilling the majority of my, I guess, maintenance and acute scripts? Well, uh, there's certainly some communication that goes on, but it shouldn't be uh, dramatic. It should be more... I would say incremental for folks. In other words, you can still you're still going to be able to go to your pharmacy and fulfill your prescription. So it's not as if um, you only get you can only get your drugs through Amazon. But what we will be figuring out is how to make that uh, appropriately attractive to them, and then and make that experience a really positive consumer centered experience, and uh, and then. As people realize, oh, I can do this. Oh, I can try this. Oh, I really like this. You're going to see behavior shift because they choose to shift as opposed to they've been told they have to or other alternatives have been blocked off from them. So I don't expect a, you know, we're going to have to communicate these changes and differences. But in some ways on day one, the fact that they, it's Amazon doing the home delivery instead of another organization um, it's not necessarily going to change their lives, but over time, I think it will materially change how they, they mm-hmm. see it. And so it, I guess in the example of where, I don't know, I get a sinus infection or something like that, and my doctor prescribes an antibiotic, am I going to walk into my corner pharmacy with, I don't know, a cost plus card or an Amazon card? <laughs> well, no, I mean, it's your, 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 it's your Blue Shield of California card that gets you access to prescription drugs. And that's totally okay. And if you want to go pick up the prescription at the pharmacy, you can. But I think what's going to happen um, 
Jonathan, is that we're going to see people say, well, wait a second. I, I mean, I get incredibly reliable delivery from Amazon. I don't need to leave my house. I do this for everything else. Why wouldn't I do it for drugs? And then I can just jump online or jump on the phone if I prefer to and talk to a pharmacist directly. So even if I want to access a pharmacist, I don't have to go into the pharmacy to get what I need for my prescription drugs. And this is a really, um, really convenient service that where they understand me, they know me, they're available. You know, it's, it's, it's highly convenient service and I don't need to leave my home and wow, why not do it this way? And oh, by the way, um, between what our work, our work with Mark Cuban cost plus we're being transparent about the pricing. Here's what it actually costs. Here's your portion of the costs. It's not some fuzzy opaque thing that you can't get your arms around. And if you want a more cost-effective alternative, you can do this. You might want to talk to your doctor, but you know, uh, so you're, you're really talking about a, the, an entire system where it's centered around, can we help you get the right drugs at the right time in the most cost-effective way possible with the best service, you know, personalized service we can get. And so that is just an experience that, you know, when you have it over time, I think people will get, um, that's why I say that I think the behavioral shift over time. So it's more of a, an evolution where you look back over it over a year or two, and you're going to see, I think, really big differences in how much home delivery happens versus in-person pickup. You're going to see big differences in satisfaction in members. Uh, you're going to see differences in costs, but um, it is going to take some time to ramp up. I guess one of the questions I had is once you guys made this announcement, did some folks come out of the woodwork, either peers or, or competitors who said, how do we stand up something similar in our organization? What, what sort of learnings have you guys got that, that we could take with us? Well, absolutely. There's, I think, a lot of interest in this, uh, particularly in the blues system. And uh, I've been clear with them as much as we are very eager to work with them in the long term. Uh we have our hands full making sure we get this right. <laughs> so we really just want to implement this, have it work effectively right out the gate, iron out any kinks that inevitably come up with a change this large. And then we can um, have something concrete to show them in terms of our results and also uh, have an operating model that we have confidence can function. And that's when I think you'll start to see more movement to this model. Mm-hmm. So I guess the the key uh, hurdles as as you kind of implement this are going to be you know one that that member satisfaction piece and it sounds from what you said that the the ROI or the savings is a little further out is that a fair way to think about it? Well, we're getting savings in the first year, uh, but it's and and substantial savings in the first year, um, but you obviously have a fair amount of costs up front to move to this new model. So net net, you know. We're probably more in the 150 to 200 million dollar range in the first mm-hmm. year when you net out your costs and everything else. Um, and then you're you're probably looking at a two to three year, probably more like a three year to get to the full 500 savings uh, that you're talking about. But I mean, you should be to you know 70 percent ish of the cost savings by the end of year two, and then 100 percent at the end of year three. Um, and so yes, it's it is going to take time, but it's not like the savings are way out in the future. I mean, I think they're coming. There, there are some substantial savings coming immediately. I, I'm sure you saw the quote from CVS's CEO about the fact that 
they don't earn that much uh, relative to the size of the contract, that $500 million of savings. Is that just because of their piece of it or, and there's all the other intermediaries that you're talking about in the, in the channel? Yeah. Well, our, our costs go beyond their profit. So Mm -hmm. like, for example, I take this prostate cancer drug. Our cost is $3,000. When, when they charge $3,000 a month for this prostate cancer drug, when they say, this is the drug we're going to fulfill instead of the $160 version. Well, CVS is not making a $2,840 profit on that drug. Right. I know that. They know that. But that is the difference in cost for us. Mm -hmm. And the oncologist is getting a piece and the wholesaler and distributor is getting a piece. And there's so there's a bunch of pieces that are getting um, uh, that are going back into the system. So a portion of that is CVS's profit. But a big portion of that is the cost of the drug. And, and so I think what they're missing in all of this is we're, we're not doing this savings based on what we think CVS's profit is. We're doing this savings based on what it costs us in this current world, $3,000 instead of 160. And part of that is CVS profits, but it's probably not even the biggest part. No, that, that makes more sense. You know, how do you square, I guess, your your position on on drug pricing with you know the various boards that you're sitting on? You know, some of the blues own Prime, you know, AHIPs. Some of the AHIP members own PBMs. You know, talk to me about the tenor of those conversations of what you're trying to do versus maybe some of the trade or what are some of the trade organizations are trying to do. Well, the, the, generally speaking, the trade organizations are trying to develop positions on major policy issues where there's commonality amongst the group. So we're, we're generally talking about, for example, on the Affordable Care Act, the extension of subsidies for, mm-hmm. for, for the Affordable Care Act. Hey, that we think that's a good idea and more people get coverage, here's why. Um, so we're often debating and discussing our policy stances on major policy issues for obvious reasons, uh, like you don't wanna be rightfully accused of collusion, we're not talking about day-to-day operations, sure. pricing, <laughs> products, services. And so we don't really get into things at this level other than I might find another CEO saying, I'm really interested in your model when they pull me aside in the hallway and, um, and, and want to have a discussion about it. So the trade groups um, aren't really getting into uh, the operations uh, and I think appropriately are avoiding getting into operations. But I do think that... Um, it can make some of those policy conversations more challenging when there are um, what I would call just conflicts. I mean, if you have a vested interest in pharmacy prices staying higher by virtue of having substantial profits and ownership running, having a stake in, in keeping those prices high, then when something like should the federal government be negotiating drug pricing, which came up, and we were one of the only health plans to advocate for it. We kind of went outside of our trade groups and said, that's a good idea. We think that should happen. But it wasn't universal. Mm-hmm. So you do run into some splits like that where I believe um, I, there's no way to know. It's, it's possible, though, that trade groups would get to a different place if there weren't those that broader ownership in those conflicts. Hard to say for sure, Jonathan, but I think that's where it probably pops up. No, that makes sense. 
you know, thinking about that, that example that you just gave where you're kind of outside the, the lane of the trade group, what are some of the other lessons that maybe you've learned at the local level that you'd like to see applied at the federal level, whether it's drug pricing or PBM yeah. reform? What are you guys focused on there that, that you think could be applicable at the federal level? Well, I think one of the biggest ones is to bring healthcare into the digital age. I think every Californian and every American should have a comprehensive, real-time digital health record. And by that, I mean everything in the physician medical electronic medical record, everything in the hospital electronic medical record, pharmacy, lab, claims information from the health plan, some of which overlap, not all of which do, but all that data from all those sources available in real time or near real time in a usable format. I should be able to use my tablet or my phone or my computer if I want to and access this information, know my latest test results, et cetera, be able to share that with um, with a new, a new physician if I want to go try to go see another physician, for example. I mean, there's no reason, there's no technical reason or operational reason we can't do that and do that pretty quickly across the country. But there's a lot of resistance to that notion, even though in the law, technically, you're supposed to have legal, a legal right to access this information. Practically speaking, you don't. And everyone's proprietary about it. Well, you can get on my portal and sign in and get this piece of your information, but it's not connected to any of the other pieces of information that are out there on your life, nor is it necessarily in a format, even if I'm a physician and say, I I'm treating you. I would like to know if there's any more information on you. There's this mechanism for me to go retrieve that information. I go out and say, get on a platform and request information about this patient. And then it comes in in a 70 page PDF format. <laughs> well, since the physician got time to go read 70 pages and find out whether you had a test that was already done on this or whether there was some historical reason um, for uh historical context for what you're experiencing today? No, of course not. Can they run software against a PDF file and actually understand if there's a gap in care or something else that needs to happen? No, it's not. I mean, it's, it's virtually useless. And so getting to this point where we're digital, these records are digital, they're usable by the patient, they're usable by their treating uh, physicians. And that infrastructure creates tremendous possibilities for greater productivity, um, greater accuracy, a much better consumer and physician experience. You can mm -hmm. imagine, for example, we would like to move to a world where prior authorization for healthcare services is like prior authorization of your credit card. You go in, what happens? You tap or you insert or you swipe your card, you wait for a few seconds, and then you get approval, usually. Occasionally it says there's a problem, you're in California, but I'm seeing this transaction show up at a gas station in North Carolina. You can't be in both places at the same <laughs> time. Fraud alert, call this number or text or whatever it happens to be. So similarly, there's no reason you can't set up a system like that in healthcare. But the barrier to it, Jonathan, is that we don't have access to these records. So what do we do? We say we don't have the information that would justify having this surgery or prescribing this drug or doing these things. We don't have the medical history. So you need to fax us <laughs> this information. <laughs> and by the way, I've told the team that I my big goal in life is to retire fax machines before I retire. Uh, <laughs> I mean, and, healthcare is the only industry that well, still yeah. uses them. <laughs> so to me, you know, getting to that digital world is important, but there's so many 
really entrenched proprietary interests saying people sort of seeing themselves as owning that data and not wanting to share it. But the only way to get to that universal sharing is through a mandate. And we've, we've passed a mandate in California. It's going into effect uh, January of next year. Uh, all the players have to share. Um, and it's going to enable us getting to that digital record in California. It's going to, again, take a while to build up, but, um, but it's going to happen fairly quickly starting uh, early next year. And that is something that I think is easily replicable across the country and has a lot of bipartisan support because no matter what your views are on healthcare, whatever party, left, right, central, uh, or center, you, um, nobody's arguing we should go back to manila folders. No one's saying it's a bad idea for people to be able to access their health records online. Clearly it needs to be secure and it can be, but, um, but everyone of all stripes thinks it's, that's a good idea. As we think about that interoperability challenge, you know, do, are you guys working with one specific vendor or, or do you foresee some sort of federal mandate for, I don't know, a data exchange in the future? I think the best way to do this, Jonathan, is just to say, to make it simple and, and let the private sector figure out how to do it, because this is very doable from a technical standpoint. And if we know we have to do it, we're all going to figure out how to do it in the most efficient way possible, as opposed to being instructed on doing it one way or the other way. So the way I do it is simply say, payers, whoever your payer is, whoever your health plan payer is, it could be your employer, your self-funded, could be your health plan. Uh, it could be a government program, Medicare or Medicaid. Um, you need to provide within 24 hours of a record being created, that record to the member in a usable format, usable, accessible format. And then the other mandate is you hospitals and physicians have to share that data mm -hmm. in that same time frame with the health plans. No ifs, ands, or buts. So if the players have to share the data with the payer, the payers then have to share the data with their patients and with the treating physician. And all of us are all subject to federal and state privacy regulations, which we are today, like the mm -hmm. Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, then we're required today to get, we get all this information already, Jonathan, we just get it like six to nine months after the fact. Yeah, it's we very inefficient. Like we know it's coming in, we just don't know it at that moment. So, um, so to me, it's a very simple way to say, this is the requirement, we'll give you some time to figure it out, but go figure it out. No, it's fascinating. I can't wait to I can't wait to the day that you know I, I don't have to ask call somebody and ask them to fax something over or pick up a CD <laughs> with some imaging oh, yeah. on it. No, I did that. I've done the CD ROM and a copy of a fax in in my treatment program just last year, uh, for sure. I, I look forward to that day as well. Well, we talked about the the new pharmacy model. We talked about the digital piece. Uh, the other thing that we spoke about, I guess, in the pre-interview was, you know, the pay for value mm -hmm. as, as another big pillar that you guys are working on. Why don't we spend a little bit of time there of, of what you're doing and, and how you see that unfolding over the next, I don't know, three to five years? Well, yeah, I, I, I just don't. One of the things I've learned in my uh, career in healthcare is you just cannot fight self-interest. People in organizations are so... Um, are just so uh, uh, focused on figuring out how to be successful. And their definition of success includes growing their revenue, growing their profit. Uh, and so they will 
absolutely figure out how to pursue what is in their financial self-interest and trying to create a system where you oversee, watch, bat it down, deny uh, uh, something. And I don't mean just, I'm not talking about denying care. I'm just saying, no, you know, we're not going to pay for that uh, aspirin tablet separate from the, the case rate that we agreed to pay with you, pay you hospital. Um, that that just doesn't work. Ultimately, there's too much persistence and creativity in pursuing financial self-interest. So the only way we're going to get to a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, getting the right care at the right time and the right place for each patient is to pay those that are treating them in a way that they maximize their revenue and their profit when they do the right thing. And so you have to move to a situation where right now we pay for services, so we get more services. We pay for drugs, so we get more drugs. We need to pay for more for outcomes. So like in this case with primary care physicians, we're gonna give you a base per member per month fee. Even in a PPO environment, we'll give you a base per member per month fee. And then you're gonna get bonuses for higher quality scores on care, on higher member satisfaction, Mm-hmm. and on efficiency, on being more cost-effective. And what else could you want? You want the most quality, you want to be pers- you want to be satisfied as a patient, and you want it in the most cost-effective manner you can. Okay, go. Uh, when you think about the, we just talked about the, the pharmacy drugs, right now oncologists and other physicians, mostly oncologists, um, hospitals, they make money on the spread on drug pricing. They're part of that distribution system. Oh, yeah. And so they have big motivation. Like it's not uncommon for an oncologist to derive half their income through effectively being a drug dispenser. Right, buy and bill. Right, buy and bill. Okay, Um, we are actually going through and taking that incentive away. We're gonna have everybody, have it be a cost center for the hospital and the pharmacy. We're gonna pay for the cost of the drug. We're not gonna just assume that they reduce their income by 50%. But then where does that go? It should go to them for the same kinds of things. Are we getting higher quality care? Are we getting more cost-effective care? Are we getting high patient satisfaction? If that's the case, then you should get paid more. And so we don't see the oncologists in the hospitals taking an income hit over this. We see them pursuing different things to maximize their income. And so when you do that, and we're doing this across the system, not just in primary care, not just in pharmacy, um, but across the system, I think you combine that with the digital changes and you have all the data available to know in the moment whether you're doing the right thing and in the moment whether there's something else you should be trying to do. And then you're going to far more frequently uh, get the right care at the right place at the right time in that model. So that's what we're that's what we're doing. I think we're going to be mostly through the primary care uh, payment model by the end of next year. And we're already seeing pretty substantive um, performance improvement for the groups that have had it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I've got high hopes for that, particularly over the long haul. What percentage of your contracts are, are what you would probably call value-based care today? And, and I guess, where do you think it tops out? Well, it's a, it's a bit of a tricky question to answer because you could argue that capitated payments, capitation payments mm-hmm. are pay for value. So if I counted that versus not counted that, it would be different. 
But I would say I'm going to put it as what I would call optimal pay for value, not just check the box. I just I've got a little bit of an incentive here and not just capitation because capitation provides incentives for being cost effective, but it doesn't necessarily provide incentives for outcomes, for right? Quality care and better outcomes. Yeah. So or or member satisfaction for that matter. So I would say that we are, um, you know, when, when I think about the ideal optimal uh, pay for value, we're probably in the 20% range now. Um, if you included more generously other payment models, it might be, you know, closer to 50%. But I think in terms of the optimal model, that's really going to move the needle. We're probably about a fifth of the way there. Um, and I think we will be moving at about, you know, 20 to 25% a year over the next three or four years would be my guess. I think it's, it's a, certainly within five years, uh, hopefully within three to four years, we're largely uh, done. Gotcha. I maybe just want to switch gears here for a moment. I, I think at the, in an earlier part of the conversation, you mentioned GLP ones and I'd kind of be remiss without asking mm -hmm. your view on it. I mean, it's a very hot topic for investors across managed care distribution, even the device companies. Yeah. How how impactful are they to your business today? And I guess you know where do you think where do you think we wind up with GLP ones, and, and how much of a profound change do they do they have on on just payers and and providers? And and is this a sea change, or what has to happen for these drugs to provide kind of a sea change in outcomes? Well, I think it's I think this is a, a great example to watch of where um, we I think we need to go with discoveries like this. First of all, let's just say that this, these are really impressive innovations, this, these drugs, uh, you know, to apparently from everything we've seen to be able to allow people to safely lose substantive weight. Um, and, and when you think about the health effects of being overweight and particularly being obese, pre-diabetic, um, there's potential, potential for really positive health impacts, reduced costs, um, better quality of life, longer life for people. And so to me, the fundamental question for us as a society is how do we figure out in, in any innovation, but particularly this innovation that has the potential for great good, how do we make sure that the, um, amount that we're paying for it is commensurate with the value that's created by it mm -hmm. because um and and what is happening today is that determination is being made by the pharmacy manufacturer themselves and they have effectively a monopoly on in the form of a patent on that particular drug there may be others in the class that create competition but sometimes there are sometimes they're not sure uh, sometimes there is for a little while and uh or there isn't for a little while, and then ultimately there is. Well, Willie's right. drug is pending approval, right? So that should put a, right. a second one yeah. out there with an obesity claim. Exactly. Um, so, but but what ultimately ends up happening is they say they determine what they think it's worth, and then they put that price out there. And I think there are times, and more often than not, that the price that's put out there is not commensurate with the value that the drug creates on extending life, on the quality of life, on the cost. And I think it overestimates the impact of the drug because 
the, I mean, they'll say it, the drug creates this much value and then all the value ends up going to the pharmacy manufacturer in the form of a price. Whereas to really get that value, um, the physician has to diagnose accurately. They have to prescribe the right drug. The patient has to take the drug and then the drug has to have the right effect on that member. So the physician, the health plan is intervening, the patient themselves all had to do something to get that value out of it. But there's this, we're calculating the value up here and then we're taking all of it. So I think we have to get to a point where we say, how do we really get down to um, objectively measuring the impact of an innovation like that and then appropriately rewarding the innovation, but commensurate with the value it actually creates. And, and the mechanisms we have, we don't have a mechanism to do that right now. And I think we have to figure that out because when we do, Jonathan, it's, it's important to reward actual innovation. It's really important, I think, to do that, but we can't reward it to the point where it bankrupts us as a society, which means that those prices have to consistently be commensurate with the value that's actually generated. And that's where I think we're getting out of whack. Mm -hmm. So if you, if, if you put your hat on, you know, as a CEO of a, of a large uh, managed care company and you think about, you know, the innovations that we talked about, what else gets you very excited or, or is there any products or companies that you've seen in the last year or two that you're like, wow, this, this has the potential to really change either the, the system at, at large or, or what you guys are doing? Well, I have to say I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a big fan of devoted health. And, uh, and in full disclosure, I'm also, uh, Todd Park is a dear friend of mine and he was, he's one of the co-founders with his brother. And, but they have clearly, um, they are, they offer Medicare Advantage policies. They're a relatively early stage company, although pretty mature early stage company, I'd say. Um, but they really designed the program and everything they do around an intensely consumer-centered model that's high quality and they consistently get extremely high quality in stars like early on in their in their tenure they get incredibly high satisfaction levels um and that they they seem to have uh, a lot of support from the physicians that they work with so when you think about the triple or quadruple aim whichever one you want to mm -hmm. talk to they've they've really i think designed a mousetrap in if I may call it that, in their model that I think um, uh, is achieving that and, and achieving it in a way they've, they've built their own sort of technology infrastructure around it, achieving it in a way that can be scaled. And, and that's the part that often gets missed in healthcare. There's a lot of really good things happening, but they happen in pilots, they happen in small mm -hmm. areas and they just don't get scaled. And people don't just realize how hard it is to scale something across a really broad population. Um, and so I think they are, obviously they haven't yet devoted health, scaled it across a really broad population yet, but I think they are a position to do so. I think I found my next podcast guest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, yeah, well, uh, he, he is a dynamic guy. Both, both of them are, both parks are. Well, Paul, you know, I think we're at the top of uh, our time. And, and one of the things I like to end the discussion with is just uh, to focus maybe on a life lesson that you share with, you know, your family, your friends or your team, something that drives you uh, and how you operate, you know, either in your personal life or your business life. Is there is there something that comes to mind? Yeah, I, well, I remember, I think my most painful and valuable lesson as a leader came 
I, when I got asked to, I was managing a group of three or four people. And then I got asked to manage a group of around 50 people. And, um, I started to do that and thought I was doing great. I was running around. I was working really hard. Um, my boss was really happy with the results. And then I went out and did one of those leadership surveys. One question they asked was, um, uh, how is he at, uh, I think it was team building or something like that. And the, the team, my, my direct reports rated me as a four, which wouldn't have been so bad, except the scale was from zero to a hundred. Uh, <laughs> And so I remember being so upset by this and I came to the realization that, um, that I, I was just working the way I was comfortable working and I was treating people the way that I would want to be treated as a direct report, but that wasn't the way they wanted to engage. And so it really emphasized to me, like I had, and I had no idea they felt this way. So one, it was a complete blind spot. And then two, it was like this deep realization that I needed to somehow listen to this feedback and change. And so to me, having those feedback loops and having a, what I would call a continuously a learning posture is fundamental to being an effective leader because we're all human beings. We all have blind spots. When we're in positions of authority, people are sometimes, if not often, reluctant to tell us what they really think. And so figuring out snapshots, figuring out ways to find out um, how people really feel about what you're doing, getting those feedback loops, listening to them, figuring out what you're going to do about them. That to me is, is just, um, is, that was such a valuable, it was such a painful lesson, but such a valuable one to me that I now, uh, like every six months I have a coach that goes out and interviews my direct reports confidentially, brings it back to me. I summarize it for them and for our board. This is what's going well. This is what I need to work on. This is how I'm going to respond to the feedback. And it's very transparent and it's constant. And it's, uh, I sort of built it into my life. So now it's more second nature. Um, but I can't imagine not doing it at this point, given what I went through. Well, this is now like more than 20 years ago. <laughs> Thank you so much for, for sharing that part of your journey and, and for all your insights on what Blue Shield of California is doing. It's, it's been uh, great chatting with you and look forward to seeing what's next. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You got it. Thanks, Paul. could you do if your data was working for you and not against you with bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems you get easy access to the details you want optimized for higher level analysis and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move our data is made for more 
so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash Enterprise Data to learn more.